are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. teaching text is 1 John 2, 12 through 14. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Thanks be to God. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's one of the most important questions asked in the whole of the Bible. I want to give you a bit of context for it. A few days before this question is posed from God to Elijah, Elijah does a bit of a spectacle. He prays, fire falls down from heaven, and awe is left on the face of his oppressor. Now that draws him quite a bit of attention from a certain crowd and quite a bit of opposition from another crowd. And so if we skip to the next scene in his story, this bold, courageous prophet is in a surprising circumstance. The same prophet who commands fire to come from heaven is now hiding afraid, borderline suicidal. He's traveled 80 miles by foot with nothing but the clothes on his back just so he could find a cave to hide out in from the oppressor that he's just prayed fire into the midst of. He's hiding out in prayer and essentially saying, God, I've had enough. The journey is too much for me. I've had enough. And so standing at the mouth of this cave and hiding, alone and afraid, God responds to Elijah with the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now this is a question God asks all of us at various points in our spiritual journey. I want to start today by just pointing out something you already know, and that is that in a life of following Jesus, you will get stuck. You will lose motivation, the inspiration will fade, you will go through seasons where suddenly everything that was carrying you this far isn't carrying you to the next place. You will get stuck. And when you do, God will ask you a familiar question. What are you doing here, Yvette? What are you doing here, Sam? What are you doing here, Colin? What are you doing here, Elijah? That's the big question for today. We're going to leave that scene. We will come back to it, but we're going to leave it for now. The big question for today is, how did you get here, and where do you go next? So we're in this teaching series called Beloved. We're spending the whole of the summer in the letter of 1 John, but for the third week in a row, we have the exact 
same teaching text. It should be getting old by now. And that's because we spent all of our time on the address of the letter. We're stuck on the outside of the envelope. We haven't even opened the thing up yet. And so now as the third week in a row, I just want to at this point say apologies for the patriarchal language in the English translation. In ancient Greek, the male pronoun was used to refer to the broadest groups of people. And so when you translate this into English, the most literal translation would go something like this. I'm writing to you spiritual children because you know the Father. I'm writing to you spiritual young men and women because you have overcome the evil one. And I am writing to you spiritual fathers and mothers because you know him who is from the beginning. You know God who spoke everything into being. You know him as he revealed himself in different peoples and cultures and eras all throughout history. You know the one who is from the very beginning. So here's where we're headed today. A map of maturity locating myself, and then the forgotten way forward. And I won't pretend we don't have quite a bit to cover. So we're going to hit the ground running. First, I want to give you a map of maturity. And I say a map, not the map, because the framework I'm about to lay out for you does not come directly from the letter of 1 John. It is built on the themes and the lives of Scripture, but nowhere does the Bible lay out this or any other framework as the map of spiritual maturity, because there isn't one. The spiritual life is not a math problem, it's a life. And that means that it's lived out uniquely in every person. There is no formula, there is no particular map. So this is a tool, and it's a very helpful tool, but it's not gospel. So the map I'm going to show you today was developed by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick of Fuller Seminary, and it was taken out of their book, The Critical Journey. So a map of maturity, meaning spiritual maturity in six stages. Stage one, the recognition of God. So the spiritual journey begins for every individual person when they recognize that there is someone behind it all. That there's a material world, but there's more than just the material world. And that recognition can come at age three, praying with mom just before bed. It can come at 23 on a gap year where you're hiking Machu Picchu and you have that transcendent moment. It can happen at 33 when a new force of love comes awake inside of you at the birth of your first child. It can happen at 43 when you're in a 12-step meeting absolutely desperate at the end of your rope. It can happen at 63 when you start to suspect that your therapist doesn't have satisfying answers to every one of your soul-level questions. However you get there and whenever you get there, the spiritual life starts when you recognize that there's someone behind it all. And you plunge headfirst into stage one when you move from an ambiguous higher power to a personal relationship with God as revealed in Jesus. And when you move from an autonomous individual on a solo journey to a shared journey with other pilgrims who are marching according to the same path. The, the progress from stage one to stage two means you need Jesus and you need the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean every church. I'm not saying every community of believers is helpful to move people along their spiritual journey. You don't have to apply this to every experience you've ever had, anything that put the name of Jesus on the front. I just mean the spiritual life is not a solo journey. You need Jesus. You need other pilgrims along the same journey. Stage two, the life of discipleship. So let me give you... Uh, a quote directly from the book here. The, the authors write this. 
This stage is best characterized as a time of learning and belonging. In this stage, we learn the most about God as perceived by others we respect and trust. We are apprentices. So you take a few steps further down the pathway of discipleship by drawing on the experiences of others, the experience of mentors. Someone or some group of people is pouring into you everything that God has poured into them. At this stage, we are the learners, not the teachers, and we cannot get enough. It's that honeymoon stage with the Bible where everything Jesus does has you wide-eyed and filled with wonder. You're taking every podcast and every sermon, every book someone recommends to you. You cannot get enough. It's all so new, and you are so alive. When I was 14, I was pretty involved in my church youth group, but I cannot tell you a single word ever spoken at any youth group gathering. But there was this older, nerdy man who did accounting at the church, and he mentored me and my two best buddies. He took us to Arby's down the street from the church every Wednesday evening and poured into us everything that God had poured into him. And I don't want you to get the idea that this is an adolescent stage because I use that example because just a couple of weeks ago I told you that over the past two years there's been a mentor pouring into me in the exact same way. This isn't an adolescent stage. It simply means I am the learner, you are the teacher, questionable roast beef is totally up to you. <laughs> now this doesn't always happen through a single person. In fact, it rarely does. It's most often experienced through a community. It's when I'm soaking up the culture of a particular community of believers, the way they worship, the way they pray, the expectation to meet God they have when they gather, the sense of love they have for one another outside of their gatherings, the way they open their homes, the way they welcome in the stranger. It does not matter if you're being discipled by an individual or a group. Honestly, I'd recommend both. The marker of this stage is that you're on the receiving end. And you move from stage two into the next stage when all the good that has been deposited in you, you take and make your own. When you're not just emulating a mentor, but you're taking everything they've taught you and then you're expressing it through your unique personality. You're not just receiving from a community, but you become a culture creator in that community that others are then being shaped by and drawing from. It's when you become comfortable with the fact that God has never made anyone like you before. And so everything that's being poured into you gets expressed in a never-before-seen way through you, in a very healthy way. Everything you've received can now be expressed uniquely through you. Stage three, the productive life. Back to the book. The productive life is best described as the doing stage. It is the period of time when we most consciously find ourselves working for God. In fact, our faith is characterized as just that, working for God or being in God's service. Now, in this stage, we're essentially run by goals. What's the next mountain to climb? What's the next hurdle to jump? What's the next project to tackle? And our sense of growth is often based on our church activity or our family life or our career. We are busy, but it's not an exhausting busyness. It's a, it's a lively busyness. When you're in the productive stage, you actually think that you've reached the end of the spiritual journey. Everyone in stage three thinks they've reached the destination that Jesus has always been guiding them to. Jesus brought me along this journey of twists and turns so that I could get here and I could serve and bring his kingdom in this way. I'll live the rest of my life in this stage. I planted this church in this stage. 
I'm not leading this church today in this stage, and you should be very glad about that. But we'll get there in a few minutes. For now, you should just know that no one moves on from stage three on purpose. No one chooses to leave this destination for the next one. What comes next feels like a step backwards, but actually it's a deepening. It feels like we're losing everything, but actually we're gaining a deeper faith. Stage four, the journey inward, which is exactly what it sounds like. Back to the book. Stage four, the journey inward, almost always comes as an unsettling experience, yet results in healing for those who continue through it. Until now, our journey has had an external dimension to it. Our life of faith was more visible, more outwardly oriented, even though, even though things were certainly were happening inside us, but the focus fell more on the outside. At this stage, we face an abrupt change to almost the opposite mode. It's a mode of questioning, exploring, falling apart, doubting, dancing around the real issues, sinking in uncertainty, and indulging in a self-centeredness. We often look hopeless to those around us. Sign me up for stage four, right? See, often in this stage, our outer world looks better than it ever has. We're a leader in the church now, our business, our, our career is going quite well, our family is growing, but our inner world is a mess because we're grappling with confusion and uncertainty and sadness that we don't know where to take. We're dealing with a wound from our childhood or unprocessed hurt from uh, the church community that formed us, or we're realizing that we've been living by a false script or according to a false self, but we don't know how to live a true script or according to our true self just yet, and so we're in this in-between limbo, and so this stage looks like a lot of deep introspective work. And that may be therapy, that may be a, a large portion of time in silence and solitude. It might be a sabbatical or a career change. Stage four is a mix of healing from the past, processing that healing in the present, and then receiving new dreams and hope for the future. But somewhere in the middle of this stage, we hit the wall. And the wall is so real and so important that we've got to spend a few minutes on it, but it's not named as a stage because it doesn't fall in a predictable order in the spiritual journey. It can become at the beginning, right in the middle, or at the end of stage four. It can either cause us to go on the journey inward or it can be the product of the fact that we went on the journey inward. It looks something like this. I have this feel-good mixture of faith and wonder and a touch of naivete when it comes to Jesus, and then I prayed for a sick family member and watched them die. Or I trusted a spiritual leader, and then they used me and abandoned me. Or I watched all of my friends' lives play out exactly according to that common evangelical script of marriage and 2.5 kids by the age of 32, and that's not my story, and I feel completely like I don't belong. Or I stood in front of all of these people and I made vows that didn't last even a decade. And now I feel like there's a massive elephant when I walk into the room that I used to feel safe within. Insert your story here. We all hit the wall and then stagger backward. This is all over the biblical story. Reread the Gospels looking for the wall and you'll see it in each and every major character. The most obvious example is Peter. He had a productive stage for the record books. Jesus, we are going to rule your kingdom forever from the Capitol building at the center of Jerusalem. That's where the whole story is going. I found my calling and I'll never leave it. And then the wall looked like this. Now, I don't even know that man. 
than eye contact with Jesus across a courtyard and a deep sense of shame. And you should notice that Jesus does not immediately resolve Peter's tension. God is not in a rush to resolve the tension when we hit the wall. He lets us live in it. He lets it do its work on us. But sadly for most Christians, this is where the spiritual journey ends. The wall hits and we stagger back and then one of two things happen. Some people just never recover from the shock. And so they make a home in their disappointment and then they form community around their unique brand of angst and cynicism. And a story built on a shared hope ends up being a story built on a shared cynicism. It's tragic. And don't hear me wrong, this is an understandable cynicism. It is so real, it is not cheap, but it was never meant to be home. You were never made to live there, and you don't have to. This other thing happens to some, we hit the wall, and then we retreat back into the productive stage. I'm just going to block out whatever it was that happened and run a group for the church. I'm just going to go back to doing and doing and doing because that's where I felt connected to God. Something's gone wrong. I've got to recapture the magic. So I'm going back to the productive life. There is no going over the wall. The only way out is through. You do not get over it. You only get through it. You don't get over the loss of a loved one. You get through it. You don't get over infidelity. You get through it. You don't get over infertility, you get through it. You don't get over abuse, you don't get through it. And you don't get over confusion, disappointment, or disillusionment with the God you thought you knew, you get through it. And I shared uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago about hitting the wall personally, about disappointment with the spiritual fathers in my life, grief that I had no idea how to process. And so I ran back to the productive stage as fast as I could back to where I felt close to God, back to where I knew the rules and I knew how to relate to try to recapture the magic. And that was not a quick period of my life. The wall is not a moment that we pass through and then we're on the other side. The wall is a large chunk of unresolved tension. It's a chapter in our spiritual lives. Among my closest friends, I called this the year of walking through fire because it was a year or more long of this deep sense of confusion and disappointment. And now that I'm on the other side of it, I would not take it back. I don't ever want to relive it, but I wouldn't undo it on the other side of it if I could, and you wouldn't want me to either. Imagine Peter leading the early church without the denial. You would not get the book of Acts you would get something very different than that. God allowed the tension to do its work in his life so that he could make him into who he needed to be. And if God, you don't get the impact of the early church without the impact of the wall. They're tied to one another. And so if God is to do everything that he wants to do through our community, we have to be people mature enough to journey through the wall with Jesus because we don't get the impact of the plans he has for Brooklyn without the impact of the wall. They go hand in hand. The wall is a place that we never want to go, but God leads us through it. Back to Peter's story. Jesus pulls him through the wall at the end of John's gospel in a walk on a beach. 
This is Jesus speaking to Peter. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, Henry Nouwen, writing about this passage, says spiritual maturity is being led where you would rather not go. How spiritually mature am I? Here's a better way to ask the question. How willing am I to be led by Jesus where I would rather not go? That's the measure of spiritual maturity. The only way out is through. The only way to the other side, to life, more life than I ever thought possible, is to allow Jesus to take me through by the hand. Because in this story, after death always comes resurrection. And if you lose your life, you always truly find it. This is what the authors, on the other side of the wall, the authors call it the liberty of living without grasping. How good does that sound? The liberty of living without grasping. Most people live their whole lives and never get there. Here's the way. Let Jesus take you where you'd rather not go. Because on the other side, we can live without grasping. It's good. It's not my words, so I can admit it. It is good. Stage five, the journey outward. So we move into this stage when we learn to accept our lives with joy. The soundtrack of stage five is that old hymn, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my body, this is my family, these are my wounds, this is my career, this is my marriage, this is my singleness. This is my life. And I'm free enough to walk out the days in this life, in this body, with this history and these circumstances with absolute joy. That's a profound shift in my spirituality, but it's one that's often not visible to other people because primarily stage five is a change in inner motivation. Suddenly we care less about what people think, but we care more about other people. We're moved less by our ego and more by love. We, we know accomplishment of any kind will not deeply fulfill us, and ironically, we often enjoy our career more than we ever have before because the pressure's off. All of these things can now be gifts instead of gods. And at this point, growth mostly looks like resting and accepting that our wounds are a part of our story, and it's accepting that God's treasured presence really has been put in a dingy, common, cracked jar like me. Stage six, the life of love. Now, this is a place I've never been. But rumor has it that at this stage, we just start accidentally looking like Jesus. We start reflecting God in everything we do without gritting our teeth. Stage six is marked by joy and contentment. Joy embodied by Jesus when he said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So for Jesus, even sacrifice became an act of joy. And Paul embodies this stage when he writes, from prison, for I have learned to be content in all circumstances. So contentment is something God has given him. That means the world can't give it to him and the world can't take it from him. See, people in these later stages, they tend to care less about material things. They're free to enjoy a beautiful home or a creaky old apartment. They're free to feast or to fast. They're free to thank God for their career success, but they also care nothing for our culture's definition of success. 
The life of love uh, is to become an empty channel that God's presence, power, and person, God's Holy Spirit just pours straight through. See, most of our spiritual lives, the, the image that we have is a cup that's running over. It's I've got this container and God pour enough of yourself into me so that it's bubbling over the surface. But at the end of our spiritual lives, the life of love, the image you should have is just an empty or an open faucet. It's just the, you're an empty channel that God's presence is just pouring straight through into the world. You become love. When you're at stage three, you think doing for God is the end. I'm going to build my ministry. I'm going to live my call. I'm going to become this type of person so I can do this type of thing. Then at stage four, you think, <laughs> what a fool I was back when I thought it was all about doing for God. The end is my Enneagram number. The end is identifying my wounds and being deeply healed. The end is, is doing this deep soul level work so that God can come into me and change me. The end is self-discovery. At stage six, you realize the end is to become love. That's the end goal of the spiritual journey, to know him who is from the beginning, the one who is love, in the words of the Apostle John. There's three people that came to mind immediately when I thought about stage six. One is my friend Edwin, who's a pastor here in Brooklyn that was not drawn here by the idea of Brooklyn. He was trapped here by the reality of Brooklyn. And if you were here when he preached a few months back, you know some of his story. So 11 years in the city gets me like a touch of street cred in a room like this one. It gets me nothing with him. Nothing at all. It would make so much sense if when someone like me moves to a city like this to plant a church on the streets that he survived, that he would scoff at me just a little bit. But he doesn't. I sit with him and I ask him questions about what it takes to be a good dad, and he's got all the time in the world for me. He welcomes me into his community. He introduces me to his people without a hint of judgment because he's free enough to love. I thought of this woman I know named Jerry who once led me through a 20 to 30 minute spiritual reflection on eating an orange. She was like, now, now I want you to, to feel the orange, feel the texture, feel the dimples on it, smell the orange, all, all the aroma that comes off it. Now listen to the sound when you peel the orange. Now look at the orange. Do you see all the little quadrants? Do you see the veins running through all of the quadrants? Taste the orange. Can you believe that explosion of sweetness? All that grew on a tree. Who is the God that would imagine an orange and then bring it into being? What is that? That is joy and contentment. That's getting to the end of your life and being still in love, wide-eyed in wonder at the God who dreamed all of this up. At stage six. Uh, the last person I thought of is my father-in-law, Kurt. He's a lawyer with his own practice, and yet all the ambition for his career has been drained out of him, and I mean that in the best possible way. I ask him how work is going, and he'll always tell me a story about someone who has nothing to do with the success of his firm. It's some relational encounter he had where love was able to pour through him to someone else. He has lost ambition to be somebody in terms of career success, and he's grown in obsession with loving somebody every day he goes to work. That's how Jesus would practice law. So last January, I took a trip to London to preach at KXC, one of our church partners, and I took a prayer ministry team from this church with me so that we could minister to the leadership and the congregation there. And on the last night of this trip, we're sitting 
in this Indian restaurant. And the whole trip, Kurt, I forgot to mention this, Kurt came along the trip as well. It is risky to just suddenly invite your father-in-law on a church trip, but I went for it. So he, he comes along this trip, and he's definitely the oldest and wisest among us, and yet he's said the least the entire time. He's been so content just to live as the servant of all, staying in the background. And then we're at the end of this trip, and we're sitting at this Indian restaurant in the middle of London, and he, at just the right moment, he reaches and, oh, man, you cannot see this thing at all. It's all right, it's the summertime. I'm glad. He reaches, puts his, puts his arm around Will, and just prays the most powerful prayer over his life. Will's weeping at this table at this busy, loud Indian restaurant. It was as if heaven was touching earth in the midst of all of the chaos. That's what it means to become love. It's to be content to be the servant of all, to be unnoticed, to be in the background, and to know just the right moments to step in and to pour yourself out, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. What if we made that our ambition? What if that in, that in an image is the life that satisfies? That's what it looks like to get to the end of your life and be filled with rest and purpose and grace and freedom and joy. I was talking with a friend this week, and he said this to me, none of us mature without aging, but a lot of us age without maturing. Our culture is so obsessed with youth. What if our church became obsessed with living a life of love in our 60s and 70s? Like, what if all this is just so we can be that when we get there? That's a true ambition. That's worth going after. And that's the map of the spiritual life. So now, on to locating myself. Have you ever felt like you were learning and growing and moving, and then all of a sudden it's like you're walking in quicksand? You're just spiritually stuck. Everything that got me here isn't going to get me there. What's gone wrong? Locating yourself on a spiritual journey can be such a freeing thing because it allows you to see where you are and to know what the next step would look like. It allows you to know the way forward. So can you find yourself on this map that I've just laid out? Do you see where you're living in relation to God right now? This isn't a rush thing. This is a lifelong journey with Jesus. Can you find yourself? Let me try to help you. It helps if we talk about what makes us get stuck. So people often get stuck at stage one because they're paralyzed by commitment, either commitment to Jesus or commitment to community. Commitment to Jesus, meaning moving from an ambiguous higher power to a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, some of you may be here, and the invitation is for you to say yes to Jesus, not to your perception of everything Christianity thinks about blank, not to everything you've ever heard that a church might say or do, but to Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the one who came to show us what our Father is really like. And some get stuck at commitment to community, moving from anonymity in a large gathering of strangers to knowing and being known deeply by the community, because that's a move of trust. It requires trust to say, I am handing you my fragile story, and you're handing me yours. People get stuck at stage two because discipleship requires humility and consistency. It means coming underneath the guidance of someone or some community, and that takes the humility and awkwardness of asking. 
And, and some people settle into an us versus them thinking in this stage where it becomes my denomination, my political party, my church, my whatever has it right and everyone else has it wrong. And that sort of thinking traps us and it makes us camp out and live in stage two. But this, this means coming under the guidance of a community, and that requires consistency from us as well. It means continuing on in a community after the shine has worn off, and we realize, oh, all these people are not nearly as different as I thought they were at first. Now, occasionally, after a service, someone will come up to me and say something really flattering. They'll say, oh, I've never experienced community like the community here, or the teaching here has helped me so much, or like these gushing kind of reviews. And you know what I've noticed is that those reviews always come from people that are relatively new. Because if you just stick around here long enough, you'll be like, oh, I thought the teaching here was pretty good, but now I get it. This guy's like four or five sermons, and he manages to reword them week after week after week. <laughs> or, or, or you realize, oh, this community, it's just a bunch of deeply insecure people searching for a place to belong and feel safe. It's just like everywhere else. And when you get there, when you're there with a community, that's when you're on the cusp of spiritual maturity if you stay, if you stay, if you stick with these ordinary people because there's a God so extraordinary that he's infinitely interested in these ordinary people. So I guess I will be too. People get stuck in the productive stage when they never stop living their life as a performance. A performance for God or for your family or for a community or for a leader or for an individual. The vast majority of American Christianity tops out at stage three. This is the tragic peak destination in most churches. And that's because it's the tragic peak destination in our culture. Most people in modern Western culture never move beyond building my tiny little empire. That's why workaholism is such a disease in our world. It's why so many wildly successful people have wildly dysfunctional relationships with their children. It's why the majority of adults, especially in a city like ours, still believe they're valued based on their performance, based on what they do. And unfortunately, the church has not broken the pattern. People get stuck on the journey inward because they trade transformation from, for some form of navel-gazing. And that might look like constantly talking about your Enneagram type and trying to guess everyone else's, using it like a game instead of an invitation to really confront your stuff. It might look like a life that's filled with inwardly formative spiritual practices like silence and rest and prayer, but that neglects the outward practices like inviting your neighbor for dinner or serving your spouse or handing out fresh produce to the poor or playing bingo with the elderly. It might look like deconstructing your faith, but then stopping short of actively searching for answers. Instead of humbly seeking, you're just angrily reacting against the expression of faith you want to disassociate with. Friends, deconstruction can lead to maturity. It's part of the journey. If, if you have the courage not to make a home there. And the name of the game at the wall is just hang on. The wall is a fight for your spiritual life, but there's so much on the other side, just hang on. Hitting the wall is like being with Jesus on the boat the night that storm hit. J just stay on the boat, just stay with Jesus and stay with community. Even if you can hardly stand it, show up to the community you want to avoid. Show up to the God who seems like a stranger now, just stay in the boat and wait. Wait for the moment that Jesus comes above deck and says, quiet, be still and there's peace.
Only when you've been through that kind of storm can you appreciate that kind of peace and the one who speaks that kind of peace to our chaos. Now, thankfully, people on the other side of the wall tend not to get stuck. There's still a lot more maturity, but now that maturity comes with a lightness and freedom. Do you think you found yourself on this map? I hope so. Because I want to show you the way to keep growing up, maturing all the way into mothers and fathers in the spirit over the course of your life. So this finally brings us to the forgotten way forward. What are you doing here, Elijah? I told you we'd get back here, back to the lonely, exhausted prophet in hiding. He's stuck. One of the most powerful prophets in history got stuck. That's helpful. What are you doing here? Elijah. And he answers, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He's right. Those are the facts. But somehow the past isn't informing the present. There's a disconnect between where God has brought him and where God is taking him. And that's because there are two kinds of memory. When I was in the third grade, I learned my multiplication tables. And so if you ask me, Tyler, what's two times two? I could say four. And I've not practiced those multiplication tables since the third grade, but I could still ace the quiz. How? Because of memory. Memory is much more powerful than we give it credit for. But that same year, I had my birthday party at the skate center, and I could tell you the kind of cake I had, the friends who were there, the playlist the DJ was working with. I had a bowl cut in the third grade, but not just any bowl cut. It was the kind with the undercut, you know, super edgy. And I can remember how awesome I felt rounding the curves at the skate center and flicking my hair up to the side just to give the ladies a peek, just so they knew I had a dark side. How can I tell, how can I tell you those memories? Because of memory. But why does it feel so much different to remember my birthday party than it does my multiplication tables? I'm going back to the same period of my life. My brain's going through the same process, but one elicits a feeling within me and the other is purely information. That's because there's two kinds of memories. Psychologically speaking, you are using different neural pathways in your brain to access each of those memories. One pathway pulls a card with just logical information on it. The other pulls a card with an experience on it. And the experience type of memory activates life within us. I mean, the first type of memory gives us just information. That's it. The experience memory activates life. It pulls our past into our present, and we have some kind of felt response to it. And so God asks a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What brought you here? And he remembers, but it's the multiplication tables kind of memory, not the skate center kind. He's recounting the facts, but those facts are just information stored in his head, and God wants those facts to live in his bones. So what are God's instructions to the forgetful, the tired, the bored, and the stuck? God responds, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. 
retrace the steps that brought you here, Elijah. Go back the way you came so I can wake your memory up, so I can drag your past into your present, sending you into a new future. The forgotten way forward is the spiritual practice of remembering. And there's such a rich history here, but I don't have a lot of time left. So let me just give you one highlight. Uh, let's go to Psalm 114. And we can see the way remembering is a spiritual practice. Psalm 114, beginning in verse 1. When Israel came out of Egypt, the sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Now, the Bible is the greatest book ever written. But that's not because of the potency of the writing. I mean, generally speaking, it's just the facts. Jesus walked on water. Those are the facts. The writing's nothing special. The icy water sent a chill from his big toe all the way up the spine of the undercover Messiah. That's how Steinbeck would have written it. But the Bible's mostly just the facts, except for one glaring exception to the rule. Memory. Psalm 114 doesn't say we made it out of Egypt and God seemed to be pretty critical in the escape route. It says, the sea ran away with its tail tucked and the mountains leaped out of our way. And that's because this isn't just written to preserve facts. It's written to engage the memory, to pull the past into the present so that future generations who are bored and distracted could know definitively when we're talking about Yahweh, I don't mean a concept to learn facts about the divine. I mean a living being that makes the mountains jump and the oceans dance. And that's what makes the incarnation such a beautiful idea. Because if all we needed was the right information about God, he could have just dropped down a few flashcards we could memorize like multiplication tables, but he didn't. He came and lived among us. And Jesus means, among other things, that God understands the power of memory. He gave us a felt experience of his being. It's not only that I can memorize that God is love, it's that I can experience that God is love. It's not only that I can bubble in the right answers on a pop quiz, it's that I know in my spiritual journey up to this point that God listens when I pray. That feeling alone never means the absence of God. That in the hands of God, my weaknesses are somehow more powerful than my strengths. But if you haven't experienced those things, they can't live in you. It doesn't matter if you can rattle off all the right answers or none of them. If you've never felt loved by God, never felt forgiven by God, never felt heard or trusted or befriended by God, then the life of God cannot be the life that's in you. And if that's you, this is an invitation to experience, to plunge yourself headfirst into the life of Jesus. And if you do know this God, it's an invitation to remember and to keep remembering as a committed spiritual practice. Because here's the catch-22 of spiritual maturity. You do not mature in discipleship with Jesus by deciding to move to the next stage. You can't will yourself along the path of maturity. All you can do is create the conditions for maturity, but God is the one who brings transformation. So how do you invite transformation? Go back the way you came. When we get spiritually stuck, we stop remembering. We forget where we've come from, who's brought us, and how we've been fathered by God along the way. The psychologist Kurt Thompson writes, loving God is autobiographical. 
It's about remembering our past and anticipating our future. It's about a God who will not be kept at a distance, but uses each of our stories to confront, terrify, comfort, convict, and woo us. The forgotten way forward is to remember the past and let that memory come alive in you in the present and then send you into a truer future. What are you doing here? Have you located yourself along this map of the spiritual journey? What are you doing here? Here, in the place where you find yourself today. And do you want to grow up into a mother or father? Then go back the way you came. Why don't we stand? We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak through our memory now to take us back the way we came. And so I just invite you to get into a posture of prayer that's helpful for you. For me, that's standing on my feet, feeling my feet planted on the ground, opening my hands in front of me as a way of saying, I'm here to receive and I've come with nothing, and closing my eyes so that my attention can be given to God. But you just get into whatever posture is honest and helpful to you. And I want to lead you through a reflection. Remember the past. God, what of my past do you want me to remember today? Something from my recognition of you, my first love? the stage of discipleship when I was a learner and the faces that guided me then, an experience that was pivotal, the productive stage where I met you through doing, the inward journey and the healing of my wounds. God, what of my past do you want me to remember today? Is it an experience of the Father's love that I've quickly forgotten? Is it that wound inflicted on me that you've not given up on healing? Is it that word of affirmation from someone I admire that was drowned so quickly by voices of self-condemnation and self-proving? Is it that hardship that Jesus endured with me? That breakthrough of the Spirit's power? God, what of my past do you want me to remember today? And now let that memory inform the present. Drag that past experience, whatever it is, into the present. How does that memory inform where I'm located on the spiritual journey today? God didn't bring it to mind without reason. And finally, what's God's invitation for your future? What is the single step forward God is inviting you to take? 
It could be something abstract, like a new vision of success, or something concrete, like do this or that. It could be a change in motivation, or it might involve you staying still and finally saying, all right, God, you can come in and do surgery on this part of me. I know it'll hurt, but it's the only way to heal. What is God's invitation? And I'd encourage you not to over-spiritualize it or over-complicate it, just acknowledge it and say yes to it. Because an invitation from God is always for your flourishing. Take the invitation.